Well, the world all around us recognizes the place and um, the, the viability of partnerships. That is people uh, or businesses or organizations that, that uh, come together for, for mutual interest and shared mutual profits. Governments recognize that. Uh, organizations recognize that. Laws recognize that. People recognize that. And you have all kinds of partnerships that exist around us. There are general partnerships. There are limited partnerships. There are limited liability partnerships. There are even silent partnerships where people share all the profits and losses but don't have any kind of active presence in the organization, no sort of uh, hand in the management or the duties of what takes place. Partnerships come in all kinds of ways and all kinds of, of uh, uh, I guess you could say, responsibilities, and each one of them dictated by the laws of the land and dictated, if you might say, by the contracts that establish them. Well, you, if you are in the church and if you're a part of the church, you're, you are in an official partnership. You have, in other words, responsibilities and liabilities You may not recognize that, and you may not have been cognizant of that, but it's not liabilities that are laid on you by any sort of human government. They're liabilities, they're responsibilities, and by the way, there are benefits that are are designated by a heavenly one, by a divine one. And if you will, what we're looking at today, as we began last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is something of the contract. It's something of the language. It's something of the, uh, the verbiage which spells out for us exactly what some of those responsibilities are, what some of those liabilities are, what some of those benefits are within this partnership. There's really no better word to describe what we have in the church. In fact, the word that's most often used by, by uh, uh, people in the, in the Scripture referring to the community or the life within the church is the word koinonia, a word which at its very root probably best is translated as a partnership. Koinonia, you may recognize the Greek word. We often think about it in terms of all the fun and the activities and maybe the potlucks. When we think about fellowship, we normally, when we think about the word koinonia, we translate it fellowship. When we think about fellowship, we often associate it with those things. But it's unfortunate to be people have sort of pegged that word with that translation because somehow that has left aside the aspect of these mutual responsibilities and even liabilities that come with this partnership. Well, Paul's intent on spelling out for us exactly what all of that is, about exactly how all of that fits together and how it all works together. He's trying to to embed in our minds in this chapter these core convictions about our partnership, about our, about our interwoven connections within the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, you could say that he has two main objectives as he goes to this chapter, and you can identify them just by the repetitive statements that he makes. Remember, we say this often as we're going through different parts of the Scripture, that you ought to have your eyes open, your ears attentive. You ought to be paying attention to things which are repeated again and again in the various books of the Bible that you're studying in your personal time. 
because it becomes sort of the defining themes of the books and of the chapters. And here you have one of those repeated themes given to us, for example, in verse 12, where Paul says, just as, there's, as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And he repeats it in verse 12, excuse me, verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And you go down to verse 20, he says again, as there are many parts yet one body. And then down in verse 27, now we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so you just pick up the theme by all of these repetitive words that the church has many members and yet it is one unified body. That's the point. And along with that is a secondary theme that we find repeated again in verse 11. He says, uh, these, uh, all these ones are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Or down in verse 18, He says, As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. Or in verse 24, He says, uh, At the end of that, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. And then once again, down in verse 28, we read that the Lord is the one who appoints in the church all the various ministries. So our secondary theme as we move through this chapter is that God has not only established the church with all its various members as one unified body, but He has appointed or He's composed the various members as He chose. And it drives for us two convictions about the church. That is, first of all, that we all have vital connections to other believers, because we're one body. We all have vital connections. And then secondly, God has appointed roles for you in the lives of others. Two basic convictions that define for us our our involvement, our connection to the body of Christ, the importance of it, the priority of it in our lives. Now, Paul's establishing these two convictions we've been noting with four principles, if you will, four statements expounding the vital connection and the role that we have in each other's lives. We've taken note, beginning in verse 12, the connection in Christ that we share. He writes there in verse 12, just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members are one body, though many Excuse me, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So he simply refers to the church here as Christ. Christ has many members. Those members are you and me. And as we mentioned last week, this is the picture that is given predominantly of the church in the New Testament. Over and over again, we are referred to in the book of Colossians, in the book of Ephesians, in the book of Corinthians here, in the book of 2 Corinthians, in the book of Romans, over and over again referred to as the body. Emphasizing that we're not just a bunch of people in some sort of organizational structure, but we are a living organism. And not only that, but as an organism, we have the very life of Christ flowing through us. Ephesians one twenty three, the church is, quote, His body, the fullness of Him who fills all 
in all. So the church is a living thing, and it is the body of Christ, and it's the life of Christ which flows through each individual part. You can't overstate that. That what you see when you look around here as you gather on a Sunday morning, as you gather at any other corporate meeting of the church, what you see is the life of Christ flowing all around you. That's why it doesn't make any sense to someone or for someone to call themselves a believer, a worshiper of Christ, and then to say that they want nothing to do with the church. It doesn't make any sense for someone to say that they love Christ and yet not have a priority for the church because what they're expressing is an incomplete or an immature understanding of what the church is. Or worse than that, what they're expressing is really an evidence that they don't love Christ at all because you can't love Christ without loving the church because it's the church through whom the life of Christ flows. That's Paul's point here. We are, though many different people, we are the body of Christ. When you look into the church, there's not just individual interaction with Christ. There's corporate interaction with Christ. His life flowing through us. So to cut yourself off from the life of Christ is to cut yourself off from full maturity in Christ because God has ordained that we all experience Christ through the corporate body. So that we can say a person without love for the church is a person who by definition is without maturity. Secondly, Paul says in verse 13 that there's communion with the Spirit. This is in verse 13. He says it's in one spirit that we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And that's simply to say that all the natural boundaries and barriers and obstacles that are, that are between us, maybe by the world or in the world, all of the social barriers, all the racial barriers, all the economic barriers, all the things that we see that rip the world apart and separate the world, do not do that or ought not do that within the church. Why? Because we all have accepted, we all have received when we came to the church, a brand new identity. We no longer are Jews or Greeks, and we no longer are slaves or free. We no longer are educated and uneducated and black and white and Hispanic and Asian. We are no longer are any of those things. We now are what? We now are one in the body. We now all are identified, not by those old barriers, but we're identified by our new experience with the Spirit. And we talked about that's how baptism is a, an identification. When Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 10 that the nation of Israel was baptized into Moses, what he's saying is they were no longer identified by the slave people that were in Egypt. Now they're identified by a new covenant. What was for them a, co- a new covenant at that time? It was the old covenant, the covenant under Moses. And this became now their identity. They were no longer a slave people. They now were a people who were God's people. They once were far off. Now they've been brought near. They once were a people who were uh, separated from God. Now there are people who are joined to God. And so what Paul's saying here when he says we're baptized 
with the Spirit. He says we, are, we receive a new identity because of the Spirit. Or he says at the end of the verse, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. We were baptized into the church, into this new body, by our common experience of the Holy Spirit. We receive the Spirit. We receive regeneration. We receive new life. And we receive, because of that, also gifts that come with the Holy Spirit. And Paul's point is that every believer, no matter how obscure, no matter how unimportant in the outside world, no matter what their standing and status is, every believer has received the same Spirit. They've been baptized with the same Spirit. They've been made to drink of the same Spirit. And so every believer, no matter how obscure, stands on fundamentally the same ground as every other believer. There are no believers which have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit. There are no believers who have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's point. And because of that, we all stand on equal ground. Well, Paul builds on those two principles with a third one that sort of creates this unity, establishes this unity within the body of Christ, and that is our complementary roles. Our complementary roles. And he does it by pressing this metaphor of the body, beginning in verse 14, to drive home the point he's been making throughout the chapter. That the body doesn't consist of one member, but of many. And he draws out that principle particularly for those who might be tempted to think that they have no part. For those who think that, that, that the church has no place for them, or, or, or those who may have some sort of subjective feeling that they don't belong in the church. And who knows why it is that they feel that way. It could be jealousy. It could be the fact that they are discontent and disgruntled with whatever position or place they have in the church, and they can't achieve what they think they ought to have, and so they have a sense of not belonging, a sense of discontent, a sense of wanting to flee away and separate from the body of Christ. Or it could be because they don't have the kind of vivacious personality that that attracts people all around them. They are somewhat subdued and introverted, and they don't feel necessarily comfortable in a crowd, and so they begin to feel subjectively that they don't belong, they don't have a place in the church. Or that maybe somehow they're looking at the church through the eyes of those external barriers and they're thinking that because they have some difference, some economic or social or racial difference, that somehow they don't belong to the church. They don't have a place there. Well, Paul attacks all of that. He addresses all of that with a series of questions, basic questions about this, this body, this doctrine, if you will. Of the body of Christ. He says, beginning in verse 15, if the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if, they, if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Simple lesson is that a body to fully function according to God's design, needs all of its parts. You could never begin to imagine that seeing, the seeing of the eye is what makes the body what it is. Or that the hearing of an ear is the essence 
of a whole person. Or that the mouth or the esophagus or the stomach or the lungs or the diaphragm, each of these things, we recognize each one of these organs needs one another in order to function properly. They need one another. And it's a temptation of some to begin to think that just because... uh, uh, Just because they feel maybe like what Paul is describing, because I'm not a hand, uh, because I'm not an eye, because I'm not an ear, because I'm not a teacher, because I'm not a leader, because I'm not a singer, because I've not been selected for this place or that, because I'm not as prominent, because I'm not as well established, whatever it might be, people begin to, to think or they succumb to the temptation to think, That because I'm not noticed, because I'm not visible, because I'm not prominent, I have no place. All those are the ideas behind what Paul's saying here. And it's the attitude that creeps into the minds of some people. That because I can't be noticed or because I won't be noticed, my place must not be important. Or even still, it really doesn't matter if I serve or not. If there's not much recognition in it, no one's really going to notice if I'm gone. Well, those are the attitudes that kill a church as surely as any organ failure will kill a body. Because what Paul's saying to us here is that God has ordained a specific role for you. And, and no matter how obscure that role and invisible that role may be, it is as important to the function of the body as any internal, invisible organ is to the life of a human body. And disclaiming any kind of responsibility doesn't remove your responsibility. Refusing to function as a part of the body doesn't make you any less a part of the body, any less responsible for the ministry that the Lord has appointed for you. In fact, it's self-centered, selfish. It's an affront to God's wisdom and God's love to neglect and refuse that responsibility. We have no right, in other words, to remove ourselves from whatever God has placed before us just because we're dissatisfied with what we are or what we have. Many Christians never really fully experience the joy of the body of Christ and ministering in it or pleasing the Lord because They refuse to recognize that what's placed in front of them is given to them by God. They look at it as something that is ordained by man. Or worse yet, something that they have the personal choice whether to do or not. We have unfortunately adopted an attitude of volunteerism in the modern church. You often hear about the church spoken of as a volunteer organization. And it subtly communicates something that you have the option that somehow, some way in the, the overflow spare time when you are full of all of your leisure and all of your employment and all of your pursuit of worldly goals, what is left over, you may or may not donate in time to the church. Well, that's not the biblical view. This isn't a volunteer organization This is not something where you choose or not choose to participate. It's a draft. You've been drafted. Your number was selected. And the commander-in-chief has appointed a role for you. 
He has given a specific task. He's given a responsibility. And Paul's point is that if you are to flee from that responsibility where God has placed you, if you're to grumble over it and begin to stop functioning in your gift, if you are disobedient in any of those things, no matter how small, you're hurting the body. His point in verse 17 is that the diversity in the body is absolute absolutely necessary for its proper operation. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? No human body can function with all eyes or all ears. Each part must be willing to perform its own function and not necessarily seek the function of something else. For the church to properly function, it has to have all of these different roles and offices and gifts. And each part has a responsibility that can be handled by itself better than anyone else. This variety of function within the body creates this incredible complexity then of complementary relationships. The most prominent parts of the body are so very dependent On those parts which are less visible. So that each one. Fully carrying out his role. No matter how inconspicuous it may be. Cannot be dispensed with. Otherwise the body is crippled. When one member is not functioning. Or at least we would say it can't operate at its peak efficiency. You may not see or believe that. Whatever has been placed in front of you, no matter how obscure, has been placed there by God, but it has. Whatever place the Lord has for you, God has placed you in that particular ministry for a particular purpose. Or as Paul says in verse 18, as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. You don't want to be in a place of questioning God's wisdom. You don't want to be in a place of questioning the goodness of God. Somehow implying that he made a mistake in the place that he's put you. You don't want to refuse that responsibility because you don't necessarily esteem it or think it is very important. You don't want to neglect that and slough off in your duties. You don't want to set that aside because it's not something that you personally chose. What you chose is not the point. It's what God chose. He places those ministries before you and He promises to equip you for them. And He's doing it all according to His wisdom. Well, Paul moves from, from that, those who have this sort of subjective feeling of not belonging, to those who have a subtle sense of self-importance. And he emphasizes the fourth principle that establishes the unity in the body, beginning in verse 20, when he talks to us about the concern that we have for one another, the concern that we have for one another. And he begins this section by repeating the main theme again in verse 20. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And then he applies it to this separate group, those who tend to operate within the church with this attitude of self-importance or self-sufficiency. That somehow they can take their, their three suits and their three sermons, or they can take their show on the road, that somehow they can be some entity unto themselves that they have some sort of, they've achieved some sort of level of maturity or they have been given some level of giftedness 
so that now they can seek edification on their own. He speaks to this group, many of whom looked at themselves, no doubt, as prominent. And he tells them that you cannot say to anyone within the body of Christ, I have no need of you. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. That attitude would be an affront to the wisdom of God in how he put the body together and a misunderstanding of how the church operates. And Paul goes on to speak about those that we might tend to to do that with. And he uses three particular phrases He speaks, first of all, about those that we would consider weaker. Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. That is to say that there are some things which are weak among us. There are some people who are weak among us. This might even refer particularly to those who are immature. They haven't necessarily progressed in the same level of doctrine and understanding and Bible knowledge that you and I have. And yet we can't look at that person who continues to stumble and and struggle and, and sort of muddle along. We can't look at that person who's weak and say to them, you're 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 dead weight. We don't have any need. Let's be gone. Be out of here. Just go your own way. We don't care about you anymore. Paul uses the word weak. You remember back in chapter 8 to talk about those whose consciences were weak. Who constantly were hung up on different things and different struggles. He says these are still, even though they're weak, they are indispensable. And we know that even about the, the regular body, physical body. We know that our strongest muscles tend to be those that are sometimes more visible. They're the ones that are in our limbs. They're the ones that are biceps and our triceps and our quadriceps and our calves. Even our jaw muscles are some of the strongest muscles that we have. All of them very visible, very noticeable, and ones which we give attention to. And yet some of the weakest muscles in the body in terms of overall strength are things like heart muscles. A heart's a muscle. It doesn't have a lot of strength, but it's a muscle. And yet we know that uh, despite its relative weakness, despite its relative size, it's quite small compared to some muscles. We know that despite the fact that it works without even conscious effort, that we're not even aware of its functioning all the time, never visible in daily life, yet we know that it is indispensable. And that's true all over your body. There are, there are all kinds of muscles that are at work and at action that you're not conscious of, you're not aware of. They would be defined in terms of overall size and overall strength as weak, and yet we know that it's indispensable to the overall function of your body. Charles Hodge brings out the application here. He says in the church, he quote, In the church, the gift of prayer is more important than eloquence. Those in the closet, however obscure, wrestle with God, often do more for His glory and for the advancement of His kingdom than those who fill the largest space in the public eye. What would the tongue do without the lungs, which are neither seen nor heard? There are all kinds of things that take place that aren't seen, aren't heard, that might even be described as weak. We might sometimes be tempted to think of as indispensable. 
excuse me, as dispensable. And yet Paul says, you're foolish if you think that. Not only that, he says, he speaks of these members secondly in, in verse 23 as less honorable. Those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Less honorable probably is a, a way of speaking about the unattractive parts of our body. Whatever that might be. I thought about trying to speculate what he's talking about, but let's face it, we all have various unattractive parts, right? <laughs> Some of mine are less attractive than yours. And so what do we do with those less attractive parts? Well, we bestow honor on them. You say, well, how do, you, how do we do that? We cover them up, right? I mean, some of us have ugly feet. What do we do? We go get nice shoes. Now, some of us have, you know, less than, less than uh, stellar torsos. What do we do? We go get shirts and blouses, and we put them on our back. And this is what Paul's talking about. Sometimes we bestow this great honor. In fact, he uses the word peritithemi, literally to put something around. We wrap it up. We cover it up. We put a shoe on it. We put a shirt on it. And not only that, we spend an inordinate amount of time looking at those shoes, don't we? And a lot of time looking at those blouses. And a lot of time thinking about how whatever it is that we're putting around that part of our body makes us look. We bestow a lot of honor on those less honorable, less attractive parts. This is the point that Paul's making that all these parts are necessary, and yet when we cover up even some of them, we're covering them with a testimony of their importance. I mean, even the natural body does some of this. It places some of its strongest support systems in some of these places, whether it's your hip bones or your rib cage, because it understands that even those that we might consider less honorable, less visible parts of the body are some of the most important parts of the body may not be the hands, may not be the face, but vital to what we're doing. And so Paul says, yeah, there are, there are, there are parts that, that maybe are hidden, parts that maybe are less seen, but they're, they're, they're equally as important. And not only that, he uses a third phrase, our, our unpresentable parts. Our unpresentable parts, he says in verse 23, we are, are treated with the greater modesty. That is to say that those parts that are Askimanon is the word. It means shameful or indecent. Those parts that you wouldn't dare show in public under any circumstances. It's not that the parts themselves are shameful, but the display of them is shameful. And therefore, we cover them up. Throughout most of history and throughout most of the cultures of the world, with the exception of the most depraved and pagan places, those parts of the body that are considered private are covered up. And so the point is this, that the tendency is that the less the natural appeal, the greater our tendency is to devote attention to caring for and protecting and clothing those areas. That is, we have just sort of an innate understanding when it comes to our body that all of these things need their proper care. They need their proper protection. They need their proper covering. And it's by this analogy that Paul brings into the life of the church, the fact that we are to recognize the importance of even those unseen members, that that there are vital organs that they contribute to the church. 
And we're to devote the first priorities of our attention and our care, even our finances, to do what is necessary for the protection of these members. We honor them because we understand that they, too, are important to the body of Christ. Paul says, in fact, the more visible ministries do not need to be honored. He says at the end of verse 24, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. God has, God has uh, given certain parts of the body. We don't, need, we don't need necessarily as much care, but there are other parts that God, by the, by the uh, gospel itself, by the truth of the gospel, by the makeup of the church, God has ordained, He's composed the body so that the greater honor is given to the part that lacked it, that there, He says, may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same concern and care for one another. This is all according to God's design. The same point Paul's made back in verse 11 and verse 18, that God has ordained all of this. He composes the body according to His wisdom so that it functions in this perfect harmony. He functions according to this perfect working, bringing about His will. His design is that through the gospel and in the composition of each congregation and each person's gifting, God desires that we give honor to those parts that are less visible. By the way, when we when we talk about this, when we talk about giving honor to every member, no matter what their role, we're obviously not talking about those who are walking in a dishonorable way. We're not suggesting that somehow those who, because of a sinful lifestyle and because of some disobedience and rebellion in their own life, ought to be constantly propped up in their deception about their own life and their standing with Christ. They ought to be called out. As a matter of fact, Paul even warns the church back in chapter 5 about permeating this kind of ungodly influence by propping it up in the church. But those members who are faithfully serving Christ with pure hearts and lives, though obscure, though weak, though unpresentable, were to bestow greater honor on them. And by doing that, Paul says we accomplish two effects, verse 25, two effects. There's no division in the body, first of all. That is when those in prominent ministries are committed to this, there's no place for contempt by the ones who obscure that would somehow drive them away. And plus those who are more obscure are less likely to have jealousy and and envy when they're, they're constantly being showered with honor. So, so first of all, God has designed it in the body so that this preserves unity by this constant showering on these weaker elements. And secondly, Paul says it produces mutual concern. God has ordained this in verse 25, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So if anyone in any way is suffering within the body... If anyone's hurting, if anyone is lacking, if anyone's falling behind, if anyone is suffering, he says, we all suffer. 
We all come together. We all share those burdens, those challenges, those obstacles that are in front of every believer. God's design within the church is that those who are more prominent, we would say those who are more mature, those who have more stable standing, those who have progressed in Christ are constantly showering down honor and care and protection and concern and love for the weaker parts of the body, the less mature. We would even say the newer, the ones who are just coming in, the ones who've just come to know Christ. Because we understand that if one member suffers, we all suffer. I don't know if you've ever heard a big toe. Anybody ever heard a big toe? Isn't it amazing how much that cripples you? Just one little part of your body. And there's something called turf toe, at least when they talk about it in football. I, I, I was curious about that. I mean, t- you know, you kind of see a football player go out of a game, and he might be out for a couple games, and they say, yeah, he's got turf toe. I used to snicker. <laughs> a toe? This guy's being missing a football game for a toe? It's actually a very painful uh, ailment, I understand, when the, the knee and the foot are caught on the ground and someone lands on your leg and bends the ligaments of your toe in such excruciating fashion that it cripples you really to move at any kind of efficiency and speed, right? You realize that, that, that one little part of the body, when it's suffering, it has its impact has its impact because when that one organ, when that one piece isn't functioning, then something God designed isn't functioning. Something God intended isn't doing its job. And so we, when we come to the body of Christ, this is the way we understand. By the way, when, when Paul says that God composed the body, when he composed the body, he uses the word that's that's used in other places to talk about the mixing of colors by an artist. He mixes them until they're the exact shade sometimes that is needed for his portrait. In the same way, Paul's telling us God has arranged the body with all of these base colors that are essential with all of the highlights that come with it. And to reject that and to neglect that is as repulsive as some rogue Amateur coming and swiping a streak across a master work of art. That's what we want to do sometimes, though. We don't believe God's work. We don't trust what the Scripture says. We don't think that God has so composed the body in just this way. But it's true, and Paul emphasizes it again there in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And he begins to sort of illustrate the point with another list of gifts that God has appointed some as apostles, those men that we've talked about in the past who saw the resurrection of Christ, who were commissioned by Christ and confirmed by signs and wonders and were the ones who laid the foundations of the church along with them, the prophets, Paul also mentions here, those who spoke inspired infallible words of guidance in the early days of the church, also laying the foundation. And once that foundation was laid, they passed off the scene. Teachers, he mentions also, those in general who are given the twofold ability to first 
properly discern and understand the Scripture, and then secondly, to communicate it. These, of course, are some of the most prominent gifts. And then he even mentions miracles, all those manifestations of God's power that didn't really fit under any other category like healing or vision or prophecy. Paul lumps them in there as well with these uh, prominent gifts, the healings, people who could heal people as we see in the Scripture totally and permanently and abundantly and immediately. They would touch someone or they would speak a word and they were completely healed. And then he, he lumps right alongside of them a couple of other gifts that he's not yet mentioned in the chapter, probably referring now to the more obscure gifts, the ones that stand right alongside of these prominent gifts. He mentions the unseen gifts of helping, antilimpsis. It literally means taking hold of something in place of someone else. So, so you're, you're talking here about someone who stands, if you will, to do something or to hold something in place of someone else. Paul uses the word, by the way, in his own speech given to the Ephesian elders. He says, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. This gift of helping, sometimes it's not as public. In fact, we would say in most cases, it's not as public as other gifts. It's not as prominent. Because it's the very nature of the gift. When you're doing something, and, and uh, we would take this to mean normally some sort of physical doing, you're physically taking hold of the burden for someone else. You're, you're doing something. The very nature of that is often limited to serving one person at a time, as opposed to something like teaching where you're dealing with large groups of people. And so there's, we would say, sort of a natural limitation of this gift, which means that most uh, surely it wasn't as prominent. And because it is accomplished in such one-on-one fashion, we would conclude that it is also one of the most widely distributed gifts. That is to say, because individual needs are all around us, and sometimes they're only uh, uh, taken care of by individual helpers, that it takes a lot of those helpers to meet those individual needs. And so we just understand that there's a wide distribution of this gift, and yet it's not a very visible gift. And yet a ministry is monumentally impacted when those who've been given ministries of helping no longer help. They no longer serve, no longer function in that capacity. It's the bane of the modern church that they have professionalized helping. That they they just have the attitude now that everything that needs to be done can be done by someone who is paid. Sometimes it manifests itself in in, uh, janitorial services. Sometimes it manifests itself in, in services and helps around the property. Sometimes it manifests itself in music. I don't know if you realize this, but probably the majority of churches today can no longer find people willing to simply give of their time and their efforts to play instruments and to sing. They have to pay them. They have to pay them. 
Well, these ministries of helps are are, help, are, are, are are important. And they ought to be something that we are bestowing honor on. We ought, we ought to be showing them great respect for the, for the way in which they function freely and by the love of God within the church. And we ought to be understanding the role of just how important they are in the church. Paul lists another one, ministry of administering, kubernetes. It's a word that referred to a, a helmsman or someone steering a ship, which in those days would have often been done by a slave who would receive the commandments from the captain, calling out the various locations of the rocks or the harbor or whatever it is you're navigating from or to. And these people would steer according to the vision of the commander, according to the commands that were given to them, and they would steer this ship with ever so slight turns to make sure it passes safely on its way. They were the ones who, if you will, put in place the, the, the steps, the turns that got the ship where it's going. In like manner, the church has men and women who guide activities and move us toward a proper destination, organizing, coordinating, communicating, so that otherwise our efforts as a church are not frustrated and conflicted. Again, these are not always visible roles. Much of the work is done in quiet days and weeks, sometimes long in preparation for events and things that take place, laying out steps, charting pathways, organizing details, calling up people, communicating needs, and yet God has ordained even them. And then Paul lists, last of all, tongues, probably purposefully, because it was the gift that the church in Corinth tended to exalt. And Paul's just saying, look, it doesn't matter what the gift is. They all stand side by side. All of them are equally, equally important, equally ordained by God. God has, God has chosen the way He put all these churches together to accomplish His purpose, His design. And that's once again, emphasized when Paul says in verse 29, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all possess healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? But in verse 31, you earnestly desire the higher gifts. That's a... That's an interesting phrase. It takes the word zelao, the word desire. And according to Greek construction, the second person plural can be translated by either an indicative or an imperative. The only way of knowing is the context. And for whatever reason, Bible translators throughout the years have chosen to translate this as an imperative. But there's no reason for it. As a matter of fact, contextually... Contextually, I think it's much wiser to translate it as an indicative. Paul's not commanding them to seek the more glorious gifts. In fact, that would be in complete contradiction to everything he said so far. What he's saying to them is that this is what you're doing. You're earnestly 
desiring the greater gifts. But I will show you a better way. That's what he says, right? I'll show you a more excellent way. It's the way spelled out in chapter 13. It's the way that prioritizes love for one another within the body of Christ. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we want to bow before you and submit in every way to your plan for our lives. Many of us have been presented with ministries that we need to embrace. Opportunities that lay in front of us to simply lift a helping hand. To encourage someone who's weak. To come along someone that, that we may have thought of as dispensable. Forgotten and left behind by the church. Lord, we know that's not your design. And it's not our desire. May you help us not to just be seeking after those visible and prominent and flashy ministries and positions. May you help us to operate by the the principle that you have built into the body. Mutual... uh, complementary roles that we have for one another all generated and operating in love Lord we know that's your design and we know that when a body functions in full health that it it builds itself up every member is benefited every member is blessed so Lord we will walk forward in that trust of your design and your plan for your glory In Christ's name, amen.